This morning's message is going to be called The Paradox Within. You know what a paradox is? Everybody's nodding their head yes. It's kind of like when Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. You know, it's a seemingly impossibility. Well, each one of us have a bit of a paradox within. This morning, our prophecies and our worship and some of those seem to focus around deliverance and, uh, in particular, uh, in Bill's case, deliverance from a substance abuse issue. One of the first things that we all have to acknowledge as Christians is that there are two laws that are working within us. And one is our sinful nature. And unfortunately, that can't be cast out. You know, I wish it could. I wish it was just, uh, you know, some kind of demonic thing that you could lay your hands on, take authority over it in the name of Jesus and cast it out. But you can't. Sinful nature is basically your desire to do things that God doesn't want you to do. And they're rooted primarily in the flesh because your flesh is not born again yet. Uh, born again is a spiritual experience. Your body will be born again when you're glorified. But that's not the only law that is at work within your members. The other law that's at work within your members is the law of the spirit of life that has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, what we have to do as Christians is know that we are slaves to God in our mind. And then let our mind and our spirit take authority over our body's desires. That's what separates us from the brute beast and the animals that are out there. Is that we have the ability through God's power and his strength to take authority over the desires of our flesh. So that we can do the good that we want to do. See, It's a mistake to read Romans 7 and consign yourself to the fact that you can't do the good that you want to do. And the bad that you don't want to do, that that's all you can do. Paul was eloquently expressing a struggle. He was not summing up his life. You know, that's been used to justify sin. You need to read how he finishes this. And this is the last verse of chapter 7. It's not really our text this morning, but it's a good place to start. It says, So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Now, how many times in Romans did he tell you you have an obligation not to live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit of God? I mean, he goes on in Romans 8 to tell you if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. And I'm telling each one of you here today, God is not a respecter of persons. The word says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot live a lifetime of habitual sin that you never get over in all of these areas. Never make a struggle against, never take your stand and inherit the kingdom of God can't be done. So when we hear these prophecies and things today, what we need to do is we need to dig in our feet and say, all right, I acknowledge there's a part of me that likes that sin. But the part of me that's going to take control is the part that likes God more than that sin. And when I feel like I don't have the strength to overcome it, I'm going to ask for more strength and believe that God gives it to me. You do whatever it takes to be free, whether you know, if you guys have a problem with watching things on the TV and a brother's come to you and talk to you and then a brother's come with a friend and then it's been brought before the church and you still can't get rid of watching whatever it is you're watching on the TV, it's time to throw your TV out of your house. Guys, we need to treat this as a struggle of life and death. That's what it is. Well, on that topic, this morning is November 23rd and our message is the paradox within.
It says, like Jonah, many of us have a war raging in us. Paul mentioned it eloquently in Romans 7. But the key is his mind was a slave to God's will and was at war with his sinful desires. Let's examine Jonah and see what we learn. Jonah was called to fulfill part of Israel's mission. He was to be a light to the Gentiles. But Jonah was full of complexities. Do you all know that the blessing given to Abraham was supposed to be one that would be a blessing to all nations? And that throughout Israel's history, there would be prophecies that would rise up and tell them, not only this, but you'll be a light to the nations. Now, ultimately, that was fulfilled in Jesus. But Jonah was a foreshadowing of it. Jonah was somebody who was an Israelite who was sent to a Gentile people to be a light to them. Listen to some of Jonah's complexities as we think about this this story. And It'll encourage you that God uses people that are greatly conflicted. I work around a bunch of psychologists. They would use that word conflicted. I don't know a human being that's not conflicted. But I settle the conflicts with God being supreme. He's Lord in my life. That's how I settle conflicts within myself. That's how you should, too. Think about this. Jonah was a prophet, yet he was a runaway from God. Jonah was drowned. Yet he remained alive. Jonah was eaten by a fish. Yet his life was saved by the very same fish that ate him. Jonah was a preacher of repentance. Yet Jonah was upset when they repented. You know, this sounds like a man that had some battles raging in him, doesn't it? Well, each one of us do too. So we're going to look at Jonah's life and see what can be learned by this. This clicking you hear is me trying to figure out how to set my watch so that I don't run way over again. Okay. Turn to 2 Kings 10.32. Do any of you know that Jonah is mentioned in the Bible other than the book of Jonah? It's all right to answer me. No. Well, I'll be totally honest with you. I've read this Bible quite a few times through. And I guess when I heard his name mentioned in 2 Kings, I just... Assumed it was a different Jonah. We're going to go to 2 Kings 10. Because I had no idea before I started studying for this message that Jonah appeared outside of the book of Jonah. Jonah's always been kind of a perplexing character to me in the Bible. Because he's got this little book that is about two and a half pages. It seems like it doesn't really have a beginning. seems like it finishes without an ending. You know, and most of it's telling you about Jonah's weaknesses. I mean, as much as it's a story about Nineveh and everybody remembers the whale, it's a story about this man's struggle. And it doesn't necessarily let you know that Jonah did all right. And I mean, that that's good. You're going to see why. Jonah was a prophet and he believed God. The problem is, like many of you, like me, his obedience was sometimes selective. In 2 Kings 10, verse 32, we're going to read something that was happening in Israel. This will set the stage for you. It says, In those days the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Haziel overpowered the Israelites through their territory east of the Jordan and all the land of Gilead, the region of Gad, Reuben, Manasseh, from Aror by the Anron Gorge through Gilead to Bashan. There's a guy, and his name is Hazael. 
and he's reducing the size of Israel. Now, what did God call Israel to do? Inhabit that whole land. But this guy, the Lord is using to reduce Israel. Not a good thing, right? At least you wouldn't think so. It's because of Israel's wickedness. But God appoints a prophet. And he appoints a prophet a couple generations from this that has a message about the restoration of Israel. That even though their land was being uh, downsized, it was going to be enlarged. Turn with me to 2 Kings 14. Incidentally, this might be your first clue to where I'm going with this, Hazael was a Syrian or Assyrian king. I uh, put a little study into that. Basically, Syria is the ancient name for the kingdom. Assyria is what it became known as over time. They, they seem to have mostly the same geographical area. Okay? But this guy was a Assyrian or Assyrian king. Now we're in 2 Kings 14. Let's look at verse 23. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. He reigned forty-one years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittiah, the prophet from Gath Helper. This is the one and same Jonah that the book of Jonah was written by. So get this. God says, Jonah, I want you to go and tell Israel that the land that has been reduced by the Syrians is now going to be restored, even though you serve a wicked king. Is there any hint in this text that Jonah had a problem giving that prophecy? No, not at all. just says that he spoke it, right? What you're going to find out as we look at this and we look at the book of Jonah is that Jonah was just like you. He liked the good word from the Lord. We're evil, yet we're blessed. He liked that. It was when... He didn't agree with the word of the Lord. He had a problem. See, I've noticed in your lives, I've noticed through some events in the last few days, it is much easier for you to receive the word that says, you'll be blessed, you're doing great. It's much harder for you to receive the word that says, you're really blowing it in this area, and if you don't shape up, you might get corrected by God himself. People get their feelings hurt. They don't want to come back to church. They don't want to hear that kind of message. But what does the Bible say about open rebuke? It's better than hidden love. You know, Proverbs even speaks about a friend who's able to wound you. Why is a friend able to wound you? Because the friend ought to be close enough to tell you that which is hard for you to hear. We're not friends to each other if we're not honest. I was honest last week with David and Jennifer and they've responded beautifully because they've shown themselves to be like David, like King David, that is, that the correction of the Lord is a delight to their soul. I've been honest with Bill this week. He's here this morning. That shows he's yet got hope in God because he's able to receive not only the 
blessing word from God, but also the correction. If you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to be godly, you have to eat the leavened bread with the bitter herbs. See, God is not a bless me God only, a big Santa Claus in the sky that simply like a genie does what you want when you want it. God is like a father disciplining those he loves. So Jonah had no problem going, hey, hey, Jeroboam II, I know you're wicked, buddy, but God's going to restore the whole coast of Israel and you're going to get to take it back from Moab and the Assyrians. That wasn't a problem for him at all, was it? Jonah had no problem carrying out God's will when he agreed with it. There's a problem, though. Even though God restored Israel's boundaries with Assyria, he also foretold Israel's captivity in Assyria. Turn with me to Amos. You want to hang a right. These are not the same guys that make those cookies. When you find the book of Jonah... You can go back a couple pages to the left and you'll be in Amos. In Amos 5, somebody nod, let me know you're there when you're there. Y'all there? In Amos 5, 27, it says, Therefore, I will send you into exile... Beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Now, do you know who lived at the same time as Jonah did? Amos. You know who else lived at the same time as Jonah? Hosea. Both Amos and Hosea prophesied quite at length about the northern kingdom of Israel going into captivity with Assyria. Now, Isaiah covers it, some other people cover it, but these were contemporaries of Jonah. So Jonah gets the word that says, hey man, we're going to get our coast restored, and he runs right to the king to give it. But now, in light of this, Jonah knew that even though the land was restored, at some point, God had said Israel was going to be captured by Assyria. Well, does anybody know where Nineveh is? It's in Assyria. And hence we get to the complexities within the man. No problem when it agreed with his national ideals. Hey, it promotes Israel? All right, God, I am your man of power for the hour. I will go give that word. But when it blesses Israel's enemies, Jonah had a little problem, didn't he? That's not any different than us. When God says, I'm going to enlarge your tent, buddy. The prayer of Jabez is coming to life for you. Oh, yeah, we hear that. When the word of correction comes, though, that says, you've served me with lip service only, what do we do? We shrink, run, find a new church. You know, the deacons begin to circulate letters in the back of the church that tells the pastor, hey, buddy, I was here before you and I'll be here after you. Got seven notches on my belt for getting rid of pastors that told us the truth. We ought not be that way. You need to take this message to heart. You need to learn from Jonah. I'm praising you already. You're doing well. There's not a person in here, I think, that I've not gotten the opportunity to give a very harsh word. And yet you're all still here. 
But the kingdom of God is for such as you. It's for those that can take the bitter herbs that are in the word as well. The onions and the peppers, not just the sweet stuff. You know, when the prophets ate the word, it was sweet in the mouth. And boy, isn't salvation sweet? And it was bitter in the stomach. Discipleship can be bitter. Just like it's your responsibility to train up or disciple a child. And we talked about that last week. As a Christian, it is your responsibility to be disciplined, to be discipled before God. You know, we got the who's who in the charismatic zoo. You can turn on any television, hear the bless me word at any moment. You can run from meeting to meeting with your little tape recorders to hear the latest prophecies and their pillow prophecies. When's the last time you were in a meeting and somebody turned to somebody else with the long finger of the prophet and said, you are in sin and you need to repent or God's judgment will come upon you? You know, everybody fancies themselves a prophet until like Isaiah, they have to strip down naked for three years before the kingdom. Or like Ezekiel, they have to lay on their side for so many days, cooking their food over unclean things. Only people that want to be prophets are people that have good prophecies to give, huh? Obedience is never really tested if you agree with what's being said. Your obedience to God, your obedience to discipleship in this church is tested when you don't necessarily agree. But you know what? There is so much power in that submission. When my wife looks at me and says, sweetheart, I don't think you're right about that, but I'm your wife and I'm going to support you 100% in it. God honors that so much more than if she gives me the shove to the shoulder and says, well, you can do that if you want to, but I'm not going with you. Why? Because she's out of authority. We do the same thing in the kingdom all of the time. Well, that pastor told me, huh. You know? And... They better look. You know how much I tithe? You know? We do all kinds of things to try to leverage the man of God into telling us what we want to hear. That's great sin. But Paul told Timothy it happened. A bunch of people with itching ears. We don't need to turn to Hosea 9.3 because you get the picture. Israel knew Assyria. They knew from the prophecies Assyria was going to take them captive. That kind of sets the... Uh, The backdrop for the book of Jonah. Jonah liked the word of restoration, but he disliked the word of correction. Turn to the book of Jonah, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about Nineveh. From Micah, you can hang a right. Nineveh was founded by a guy named Nimrod. I've often had a hard time just saying his name without laughter. Have you all heard people call the crazy Nimrod? Or we? Well, anyway. Nimrod was a guy who instituted great rebellion before God, built himself a little tower in the plain of Shinar. God had to come down himself and knock that thing down. Well, Nimrod founded Nineveh. So are you getting the picture that if the foundation is nasty, everything that is produced on top of the foundation might be nasty? Kind of like we benefit from Israel because the root was holy, so also the branches have to be holy. Well, it works the same way the other way. It was founded by Nimrod, and it was greatest under a guy named Sennacherib, or some of my brothers might say, Sennacherib. Now, what do you know about Sennacherib? He showed up outside the walls of Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day, and God had to send a little angel after him that killed 185,000 of his men. But Sennacherib thoroughly conquered northern Israel. In fact, he thoroughly conquered that whole area. He fulfilled all of the prophecies. 
Nineveh was at its greatest height under Sennacherib. And depending on where you read, some say that Nineveh had a circumference of 60 miles. Took more than three days to walk around it, 20 miles a day. That's pretty big for the ancient times. 60 miles was like the beltway, y'all. Think about that. The walls of Nineveh were some 100 feet high. When's the last time you saw something that was 100 feet? Now, I remember I was in a man lift one time that was 110 feet, and I thought the airplanes were going to hit me, you know? I mean, 100 feet high. And they were wide enough to have three chariots abreast across the top. Big walls. There were 1,500 guard towers, some archaeologists say. That means in this 60 miles, there were 1,500 towers for defending the city. Now, the Bible tells us that there were 120,000 children so small they didn't know their right hand from their left hand. Looking at the culture and the times, that would mean that there are somewhere between 600,000 and a million adults. So that the total population rested between 600,000 and a million people. We're talking about a sizable city. So did Jonah not go because he was scared? Well, let's find out. In Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. You'd think Jonah would be excited, huh? I'm going to go preach against that big old city, and, and God's going to burn it down. Apparently, Jonah had a little more insight to God. Does God desire judgment? No, God says that his mercy triumphs over judgment. God desires that all men are saved. Jonah was supposed to go be a light to the Gentiles. You find out later, he didn't go, not because he didn't want to preach against Nineveh. He was scared they would repent. He didn't want them to get the message that God might be judging them. He just wanted the judgment to come on them quickly, suddenly, like a flood. That's a pretty bad thing, isn't it? Have you ever felt God nudge you to go talk to somebody about Jesus and you thought to yourself, no way? Well, a bunch of eyes just shot down. Apparently that, that hit a nerve. You know, that's, that's no different than not wanting to go to Nineveh. They don't deserve Jesus. They won't receive Jesus. Forgetting that they could die at any moment and judgment come on them like a flood. You know, when we pass people, does it not ever overwhelm you when you're in a football stadium or walking through the mall and you look to your left and right and realize these people are walking headlong into hell? But Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. You know what's funny about this? Nineveh is some seven, eight hundred miles, something like that, north of where Jonah was. <laughs> Tarshish is almost due west, some 2,000 miles. This would be like God saying, Eric, I want you to go to the top of Texas. I say, sure, God. And I get on a train bound for California. I mean, that, that's exactly what this is like. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, Jonah's writing this book. At least he was honest. Lots of you have run from God in your life. But we don't say we ran from God. What do we say? God didn't speak to me about that. I didn't hear that. What do you mean? I'm not in sin. 
Like Proverbs says about the adulterous woman. She eats, wipes her mouth, and pretends she's done nothing wrong. You know, at least Jonah says, hey, I was running from God. What we do is we're obstinate. We stand still and say, we've done nothing wrong. God didn't tell me to go. God wants me blessed. He wants me right here. He wants me to build a nice house for myself. That's what he wants. He didn't tell me to go. At least Jonah was honest. He said, I heard from God and said, hell no. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. This is the first hint that Jonah is a type of Jesus. I'm not going to have time to explain that today. But I'll point out a few little hints so that you can study on your own. There's three or four times where Jonah does the exact same thing Jesus does. The captain went down to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. The Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, said Jonah was snoring. You know, he decided to run from God and he went to sleep trying not to hear God's voice. Not only do we not admit that we're running from God, we're like dead men walking around asleep. God didn't speak to me. I can't hear him. We're asleep, dreaming our own little dreams, forgetting about the vision of God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, this is interesting. The Proverbs tell you in the 16th chapter and 33rd verse that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Now, don't you use that as a chance to go to Vegas and think God's going to make you rich because he'll control the dice for you. He may not want you rich and you might find out real quickly how unprofitable it is to gamble. Let me ask you something, though. Was this a blessing or a curse? On Jonah. On Jonah. He's fixing to get pitched right over. His discipline of God. See, when something bad happens to us, we say it's the devil. The devil did that to me and why didn't God protect me? Running from God, ignoring Him, not listening to anything He says. You get the word that you don't like. You take your ball, you try to go home. And then, when something bad happens, we say, oh, it's the devil. How about that Jewish guy who was on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho? And God appointed for him a little beating. And then, a Levite passed by. And another of his kind. But it just passed him by. Y'all know the story I'm talking about? The Good Samaritan? Sometimes when you are running from God, it is a good thing that you get thrown off of a ship. It is a good thing that you get beat up a little bit. I'll be honest. When I didn't see Bill for a couple days, I was praying. Lord, do whatever it takes to get Bill back in here. If the church is, is not desirable... 
Let someone find out how undesirable the world is. It's a great motivator. Do you know that in the Bible, Paul turned over someone to Satan to be taught not to sin? That happened in the book of 1 Corinthians. In the book of 2 Corinthians, that same man was restored. Sometimes we're asleep in the middle of disaster. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? And what is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Now, guys, what I think is hilarious, you meet Christians with gross sin in their life that they are not repentant of. And who are the only people that they're witnessing to? People that they ought not be witnessing to. These guys don't know anything about God. They don't know any. They they had no idea. And then the one witness they have is somebody who's running from God. You know, great message that speaks about God, isn't it? It's always the Christian who's drunk in the French Quarter that's talking the loudest about Jesus. You know what I mean? Now, before we get too legalistic, God uses flawed creatures. He's using me right now. I know that. But we need to be aware. Let's first get our lives in the will of God and then go preach to other people about their lives being in the will of God. Lest we hear that proverb, physician, heal thyself. And I know. He said, but wait, the Pharisees said that about Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus' life was in the will of God. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Oh, that's a great witness. I serve the God. The creator of the heavens and the earth, the God above every God. And I've decided I know better than he does, so I'm hauling it that way. But I do admire Jonah's honesty. At least he told them, I'm running from God. When you're not being obedient to God, what do you tell the people around you? God wants me to do thus and so. No, he never told me to do that. You lie. You lie to yourself. You lie to everybody around you. You get mad when anybody tells you that you've believed a lie. We can even work it out to our sin is God's fault. He just didn't give me the strength to get over this. Oh, I know he died on the cross and we had that whole baptism in the Holy Ghost thing. And he promised me doing the most power, but I just, I don't got it. It must be God's fault. Y'all, we need to wake up lest we get swallowed up by a big fish. What a blessing that would be. You know? Sometimes when people walk out of the doors of a church, the best thing that can happen to them is them get swallowed by a whale. Be a little time for reflection. So the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. You know, we talked a little bit last week about owning up to your sin. Jonah does a good thing here. You remember when Adam sinned? And God comes to him and says, oh, it was the woman. So God goes to the woman and she says, well, you know, the thing is, Lord, it was the snake. You know, at least Jonah says, you know what, this is 100% my fault. And if you throw me overboard, he's willing to lose his life at least so that these people who were innocent wouldn't lose theirs. That's That's admirable. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, 
Oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. Was the guy innocent? No, but he hadn't done anything to them. So from their perspective, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. Somebody else calmed the sea, didn't they? My Lord, look into that. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. As much as I say Jonah shouldn't be preaching to people while he's backslidden, the fact that God brought correction in the backslider's life was a witness to them, and they made vows to God. You know, the best thing that can happen, you say, well, I've been ruining my witness at work. Go repent to them. Let them see God's correction in your backsliding life. And they will make vows to God. See, the witness is not that you hide your imperfection. That you pretend like it's not there. The witness is you acknowledge I ran from God and He is correcting me. And then they'll see something they can relate to and desire to be saved. Get this. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah was consumed to be saved. He lost his life that he might live a new life for the Lord. You remember? They thought they were killing him. They threw him overboard. When you're willing to die to your desires, when you're willing to cast your life over the side of the ship, when you're willing to be eaten by a great fish of the sea, if that's what it takes, then there's a shot for you for a new beginning. But as long as you're clinging to your pride, you're clinging to your self-righteousness, charging God with wrongdoing. I'm not in sin. I'm not doing this wrong. God's just not helping me. If that is your attitude, you cannot begin a new life because you've not yet died to your old life. That's what I'm saying registering with y'all. Good. Starting chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fist, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Sound like Jonah would have liked that song, Call Him Up, too, huh? From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. I think everybody can see Jesus in this, can't you? You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. He had the sentence of death in his heart. He sank to the bottom of the ocean. It's not like the fish pegged him off the surface. He thought he was dead. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Get this. 
What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. The best thing you can do when you're in sin is acknowledge your sin. Die to your sin and make new vows to the Lord. And then make your vows good. When you realize you've been doing something that you ought not be doing, when you've been struggling with it, acknowledge, hey, this is a battle going on in me. I want to do what's right. And I also don't want to do what's right. Lord, I need your help to choose that which is right. And I'm dying to this other thing. I'm throwing it overboard and making new vows to you. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, God's salvation is not always a pleasant experience. We have the idea, I've got a broken bone. Let's let David just pray for me and the bone will be healed. Right? Magically. Does that happen? Sure. How else might God heal a bone? Might have Dr. Kinchin said it and it could be very painful. See, there's deliverance in all kind of methods. You say, well, Jonah was saved. He was saved by a fish. Yeah, he was in the belly of the digestive process of a fish. You think that was pleasant? Three days in stomach acids and then being puked out. When you run from God, there is mercy. There's also consequence. You know, I suspect later when Jonah's upset about the wind on him and the sun on him, it's because his skin probably felt like it was on fire from having been digested by this whale or fish or whatever it was. Makes no difference to me. It's a miracle. I don't care whether it was a guppy that swallowed it. Incidentally, I told you a lot of this speaks about Jesus. Of course, Jesus was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. He said it in Matthew 12, just like this. You know what else it speaks of? Israel. They were swallowed by something. It devoured them only to protect them. You know what it was? The Gentile nations. See, if Israel had remained a nation when Hitler was alive, they'd been totally wiped off the planet. God dispersed Israel amongst the Gentiles. They were devoured by the Gentile nations only to be spit back out again as a nation to perform one calling. You see that here. But that's more Bible study. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Everybody say, second time. Praise God, there's a second time. So you blew it yesterday. God will help you today. You know, you don't just get one chance. You don't just get two chances. If your heart is right, God will work with you until the day you die. But do not deceive yourself. Don't say God knows my heart and He knows that I'm trying with everything I have when all you're doing is living in sin. Yeah, He knows your heart better than you do. You're deceived. See, you cannot live in habitual sin. You cannot be addicted to pornography. You cannot be addicted to gambling. Addicted to all of these things. Living in it day in and day out and claim that your heart is for God. It's not. You need to acknowledge that. You need to say, the faith that I have is in danger of being snuffed out by this sin that is growing in my life. Lord, how do I die to it? Help me set my will against it. So, well, Pastor, are you saying that sin's a matter of willpower? Oh, yeah. 
It's just a matter of willpower assisted by the Holy Ghost. If it were just willpower, lost people could be saved. But they can't. You have the power of the Holy Spirit working in you in conjunction with your will. Y'all pray in the Holy Spirit? Okay, at least some of you pray in the Holy Spirit in here. When you get baptized in the Holy Ghost, God does not force your mouth to speak in other tongues. You have to, with your will, begin to speak and He gives you the words. You don't go into a trance and He'll make you speak. Well, why do we think any other movement of God is any different? He works in conjunction with your will. If God wants Gary to go preach somewhere, Gary has to be willing to be obedient to go preach for God to anoint him and empower him to do it. Otherwise, it doesn't get done. We say, well, God's got to help me have the power over this sin. Yeah, and you have to help yourself by deciding you hate it and taking steps not to do it. We're waiting for the magic pill to drop out of heaven. I use the computer as an example because everywhere I read, they say even pastors, some 60% are in Internet pornography. Well, why do they still have computers? If you love the Lord and you're being drawn into that and you can't break the chains, if you've set your will on God and can't find it, throw the computer away. If your car causes you to sin, burn it. Jesus said if your eyes cause you to sin, tear them out. Now, obviously, you need your eyes in here. So let's start tearing away other things first. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Any means necessary to be pleasing to God. See, we don't want to give up any of our freedom. We don't want to give up any of our comforts. And we want to walk holy. Well, that's fine if you're doing that. But if you're not able to walk holy, examine your life. Perhaps some of the freedoms you've allowed yourself, some of the things that Paul said are permissible, are not profitable for you. Is it permissible for you to have a computer? Absolutely. Is it profitable if you can't quit looking at pornography? No, absolutely not. Might Jan be able to have a computer and Eric not? And that both be God's will? Yes. The same way that works with alcohol, the same way it works with every other thing in the world. God made things that are good, that are for your enjoyment, that one Christian can handle and another Christian cannot. See, you need to look into the mirror of the Word, take a sober estimation of your life. And if you cannot handle a freedom, get rid of it. You are not free to sin. See, but I need that. You don't need anything except God. You don't need cars, you don't need jobs, you don't need anything except God. You figure out how to walk in holiness and God will add to you what you need. But you've got to love Him a lot to do that. And truthfully, we like to talk that we love Him a lot, that we'll do everything. Come on, man, put up or shut up. You've been struggling with something for years and years and years and you've not taken any steps to get out of it? Don't you get the idea I'm talking to one person in here? I'm talking to you. You as y'all. Talking to me. I know what it's like to struggle with sin. You know? Is that a surprise, y'all? I've had to go to brothers and say, hey, I need you to pray with me. That's humbling. Especially sometimes when they go, I had no idea. Well, great, you know, let's not write a book about it. Let's pray. (laughs) 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. At least Jonah's willing to be obedient. Now, does he have this thing worked all the way out of his heart now? No. No, he really doesn't. There's more work to be done, just like there's more work to be done in you. Everybody rejoices when somebody says, I renounce sin. I'm ready to be born again. I rejoice, but I also know that's just the very beginning. Let's see tomorrow. Let's not be foolish here. Our mercy should be laced with wisdom. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. (laughs) You know what that is? Think about this. Did he say, I serve the God of Israel who's compassionate. I serve the God of Israel who doesn't desire that one would perish. I serve the God of Israel that will graft you into our holy nation. Now, he just said, hey, Nineveh! Forty more days and you're going to hell, baby. Kind of like some of the street preachers out there. You know? Their message is, you and you, and especially you long-haired hippie looking guy, you are going to hell. Well, why was he obedient? He's still saying exactly what he wanted to say. It hadn't been worked out of his heart yet. So God will have to appoint something else to help him work it out. Because God loves him. He disciplines those he loves. Now, Jonah's... You know, he said, what? I was obedient. I'm on my way to Nineveh. But there's still a problem in his heart. He's got the same spirit in him that James and John did when they said, Lord, can we call down fire on him? You know, Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of when you act like that. We can convince ourselves we're being obedient. You can actually carry out a deed and be disobedient in your heart. You ever told a little kid, you sit down? And yeah, their little body sits down and in their mind they're looking at you with their eyes like, buddy, I'm standing up on the inside. You know what I'm talking about. Well, Jonah's being obedient. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now that should make any preacher happy, huh? Hmm. If your desires are God's desires, that should make you happy. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently upon God. Sounds like the Ninevites were taking their relationship with God a little more seriously than Mr. Jonah, huh? One of the signs of Jonah, by the way, is when the Gentiles call on God more urgently than the Jews. That's just something you might take a little note of. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. See, God's prophecies to you. 
When he says, Jan, you will be great and you will be lifted up, it's contingent upon your obedience. When he prophesies to you and says, Mandy, you'll be brought low to the dust of the earth and humbled. That's also contingent on the fact that she stays disobedient. We serve a God who looks at your heart and understands it better than you do based on your actions. And when he sees fruit that is in keeping with repentance, he often relents from judgment that he has said he would do. Even when he said good things would happen to you and he sees fruit that is not in keeping with holiness, he often relents and they do not happen. I prophesied to somebody a couple years ago that they would do all kind of great things. Two years later, they blew their head off. Do you think I missed that prophecy? No, they missed the will of God. I don't say that as if I'm unwilling to miss prophecy. I miss it. Missed it. <laughs> One of my best friends is married to somebody that does not look at all like the guy I told him his wife would look like. <laughs> you know, I said, you're going to marry a beautiful brown haired, uh, brown eyed girl. He married a beautiful redhead. You know. I missed it. So I'm not saying this to say, look, I don't miss prophecy. I'm saying God's will for that woman was that she did one thing. She didn't find the will of God. She didn't carry it out. She didn't set her will on his so that he could give her the strength to carry it out. The devil's will was done in her life. God's will is not always done. He'll raise up somebody else to do it if you don't. But his will's not always done. Get this about Jonah. Jonah was upset, and he was upset that mercy had been shown to the Gentiles. Now, what had just been shown to Jonah? Mercy. You know, in our relationships, God will spare you a thousand times. Somebody wrongs you once, you want to burn them. I was in a conversation the other day where somebody was expressing animosity towards a relative. Because the relative did something wrong to them. About six months ago one time. And all I could think about, I was overcome with the thought, how many hundred times have you wronged everybody in this room? You know, We love to receive the word of mercy. We hate the word of correction. And we like it even less when other people we think ought to be judged receive mercy. We need to be man and woman enough of God to receive the good with the bad, realizing it is all good. What father doesn't discipline his child? You know, the harsh way that the Bible says it is you're a bastard if you're not disciplined. I mean, the Bible says that very clearly, bluntly. Now, Jonah was upset about the kindness shown to the Gentiles. We've been brought from death to life, just like Jonah. He died and yet was alive. Our life is not our own. It belongs to God. Jonah's life did not belong to him. It belonged to God. He made vows to God when God spared his life. And yet we are angry when we disagree with the way things are in our life or the words God gives us. Be warned. God will provide another lesson for us. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? In other words, God, I told you, told you how this was going to happen. That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, help me understand why Jonah said this. 
He's the guy that said, hey, Israel, your whole coastland is going to be restored, taken back from Syria. And everybody probably rejoiced in that and said, oh, great prophet that Jonah is. Woo, Jonah's our man. Jonah's the next Billy Graham, Charles Stanley, Adrian Rogers, whoever else everybody loves. But now Jonah is bringing a message to the Assyrians when he knows that they're supposed to conquer Israel. And they repent. Is that going to make him a friendly guy back in Israel? Only amongst real Jews. Because they're going to be angry. You mean God was going to wipe them out and you talked them into repenting? Don't you know that they're supposed to destroy us? This is treason, Jonah. You hate us? You want us to die? See, it takes a real man of God to tell you what you don't want to hear. It may be that you would be better off in some bad situation. You say, well, God wants me to take that job where I barely make ends meet? Well, it'd take a man of God to tell you that, wouldn't it? I mean, we want for people to like us. We want to say things to people that are well-received. That's not the only thing that God calls you to do. You know? What's funny, I think, is when we're trying to make a decision, we gather around us the people that we think will agree with us. And when people don't agree with us, we're angry about it. Jonah is here having preached repentance to the enemies of Israel, and God has spared them. And now he's ticked off. Like the babies in the back right now. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. All Christians are. We are so happy when God eases our discomfort. In fact, we think that's what God's in the business of being God for. God is all about being our caretaker. He's all about making sure that we're comfortable. We've raised up for ourselves teachers that tell us nothing else. God wants you rich. He wants you fat. And He wants you happy. God wants you blessed so you can bless us and we can build a mega church. That's all we hear. We think God is in the business of raising up a vine for our shade. What is the only reason that God raised up this vine for him? To take it away from him. To teach him a lesson. God would do that. God is not always about the book of Jabez in my life. God disciplines those he loves. And Jonah still doesn't have this message. And so God loves him enough to get him the message. You remember when David had the ark brought in? And his buddy Uzzah? Uzzah? Uzzah or Uriah, for whatever reason, I can't get that right at the moment. Yeah, I think it's Uzzah. Reached out and steadied the ark. David was doing something wrong. God had needed to get his attention. Uzzah died for that. David was so upset he wouldn't let the ark come into his, his city until he read the, the book of the law and found out what he had done wrong and God taught him the lesson. See, we think that God won't allow anything harsh to happen to us. God doesn't want us uncomfortable. God doesn't want us in a time of suffering. God doesn't want us to 
have hardships. We think that. When the truth is, we're called to it, not just for the gospel's sake, not just to advance the gospel to other people, to advance the gospel in your life. Now, I'm not saying God called Jonah into sin. That's not what I'm calling a hardship. God doesn't cause you to sin. He doesn't remove his hand so that you will sin. That's twisted thinking. That's back to blaming it on God. But God will allow you discomfort. He will allow you hardship so that you might learn from him. One thing the poor are is rich in faith. I trade money for rich faith any day. Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. I love that. I love our great big God provided a worm to teach Jonah a lesson. The whale didn't get it done. You know? Being three days in the belly of vomitous acid didn't get it done for Jonah. So God provided another thing from creation to teach him. A worm. Man could learn a lot from a worm, honestly. Worm gets a bad rap, too. You know, have you ever heard somebody such a worm? This worm did exactly what God told him to do. I'd like to be a worm like that. God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that it grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. We do need to die rather than live. We need to die to our own desires and live to God's. Jonah made the vow. He's just not carrying it out. So God provided for him a little lesson. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. In other words, Jonah didn't do anything to cause this vine to come in. It was simply a blessing from God. And the moment the blessing from God was gone, Jonah was angry. See, we this reflects our hearts, y'all. There are so many times that as long as it's blessing, 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 we're happy and we're good Christians striding right along, marching to the beat of the Christian soldier. And as soon as discomfort comes in our life, what is this God is doing to me? He would want me to suffer on my job? Why is Jonah having to suffer here? So that Nineveh might get saved. He might cause you to suffer that somebody else gets saved. He might cause you to suffer that you stay saved. You know, the shepherds in Israel would break their sheep's legs if they kept wandering off. Then they'd carry that sheep around their neck, especially when they were young. And as the sheep's legs healed... It was also bonding with the shepherd so that it didn't run off. There are times in your life you need your legs broken so that you can't run away from God. And it is an act of mercy, not judgment. Sometimes the leg breaking might just be a very hard word. Sometimes the leg breaking might be trapped in a job, trapped in a city. Sometimes the leg breaking might be trapped in a rehab. I don't know. I don't know what your correction from God is, but I do know that if you don't receive it with the same joy that you received the blessing from God, you miss out. 
Let's finish this, then I want to... And I'm doing so good on time. I want to tell you some things about the sign of Jonah. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And the book of Jonah ends. This is a rhetorical question. How should Jonah have answered this question? Yes, Lord, you have every right to be concerned about them. And God's concerns should outweigh yours. Oh, so that's easy to say, but think about it in practice. That means even when you don't want to do what God's told you to do, His concern should outweigh yours. When you would rather go to Tarshish than go to the place God sent you, His concern should outweigh yours. You should not have to be swallowed by a whale, vomited on a beach, given a worm to eat your vine. A a wind to scorch you and sun to beat down on your head. Those things are mercy beatings so that you'll find the will of God. They're prods and goads like Saul Paulus of Tarsus was receiving before he became the Apostle Paul. They were to get him in the right direction. As Christians, God ought to be able to speak to us by his spirit. But make no mistake about it. When you ignore it and you pretend like he's not speaking which is the same as running from God, and you do not do what He tells you to do, He will provide for you hardship for your benefit. Some notes on the sign of Jonah, and we're going to wrap it up here. Jesus said Jonah would be a sign, and I know what He meant. But let's look at Jonah's life to be a sign to you today. Before we get into what Jesus meant by the sign of Jonah, let's just take Jonah as a sign to us. Make up your mind to love correction as well as blessing. That needs to be a vow that you take today. Make up your mind to be obedient even when you don't agree. That's the proving of your faith. I've noticed something real quick. People say, oh, Pastor, I agree with you said, with what you said 100%. But they're also equally quick to say, oh, I don't agree with you about that. It's interesting. wonder why God made me the pastor if I'm so blind and know nothing. See, you can't just take the things you agree with that I say. You need to at least strongly consider the things that I say that you don't agree with. Believing that perhaps God is speaking some insight through me that you don't yet have. Make up your mind to be obedient even when you don't agree. Make up your mind to consider your life devoured by God and spit out as a new life. You were swallowed by a whale for one purpose. To spit you back out on the shore so you could do God's will. Honor your vow to God now that you are walking in this new life. And show mercy over judgment to everybody that you meet. That needs to be a rule that follows you everywhere that you go. Before you say a harsh word about somebody else, you should always consider the mercy that's been shown you. Because God said it's the same standard that you use to measure others, you will be measured by. I found out we have a double standard. One for us and one we would like God to use on other people. Can't be. Another thought about the sign of Jonah. Jonah is the resurrected Christ. 
Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, the same way Jonah did. The sign of Jonah is also Israel, who was swallowed and devoured, yet restored. Swallowed by the Gentile nations, yet restored as chief among the nations. Just like Jonah was swallowed and devoured by a whale, and yet saved by that very same whale. Another sign of Jonah is the light to the Gentiles. Jonah was swallowed by whales. He spent three days and three nights in the heart of the, the sea and the big whale to get out and preach repentance to a Gentile people. After Jesus was resurrected, his apostles went forth in some period of years, and this gospel has been carried to a Gentile people, being a delight to the Gentiles. While Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he almost exclusively preached to Jews. After the resurrection, there was a shift and it began being a light to the Gentiles. All those things are the sign of Jonah. Of course, the biggest one is the resurrection. But you'll notice the sign of Jonah that is spoken about in Luke and twice in Matthew is almost immediately preceding some encounter with Gentiles. It's interesting. So he's looking at these people who had the heart of Jonah. They didn't want any Gentiles blessed. They wanted to hear the word of God that they wanted to hear. They said, nothing's going to be given you wicked and adulterous people except the sign of Jonah. We immediately see the resurrection in that. You know what they were thinking about? Blessings going to the Gentiles. Oh, and they hated it. But that's another message. We're going to pray.